We're beginning a brand new series this morning in the book of Colossians, and the series is titled The Incomparable Christ. Now, Colossians is one of my go-to books. All right, I go there when I don't know where else to go. I go there when I need to remember what this faith is all about. I need the book of Colossians. I need it to remind me. I need it to encourage. I need it to instruct. And at times, I need that book to correct me, which was the purpose of this letter to its original hearers. You know, we're all tempted to try and earn, add to, or pursue something beyond Jesus. So what happens when we begin to believe Jesus isn't enough? The temptation is to look to other things to satisfy. The book of Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, it reminds us Jesus' supremacy and his sufficiency is the very best protection against uh, this error. And it's the greatest remedy to our seemingly endless search for meaning and hope. Hope. That's the title of our talk this morning, Hope. Hope has been the theme of political campaigns. It's been the driving force behind revolutions. It's been the place of rest during hard times for all of us. Hope always has an object or a person that it rests in, a future it anticipates. Colossians chapter 1, it reminds us that hope in the good news of Jesus isn't a wishful thinking or this I hope this all works out kind of attitude. It's actually the soil everything we need grows out of. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we dive into this this book together over the next several weeks that you'd help us to grasp what you're saying, why it was given. That Jesus would be put front and center where he needs to be that he would be seen as supreme and as sufficient, and that hope, not a wishful thinking, but a certainty would just rise in our hearts. And that from that hope would grow faith and love and endurance and patience and joy. From that hope, we ask, would grow a life that looks like we belong to Jesus, a life lived for your glory, full of purpose and joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A little background to the Colossians. They were a young church that had come up against some false teaching. This false teaching may have been a combination of Judaic formalism, which really just means rules and regulations. And then you combine that with some mysticism, or the worship of angels potentially, which led them to believe that Jesus just wasn't enough. He, they were tempted to believe Jesus wasn't sufficient. They were devaluing Jesus. Jesus was essentially being placed on the same level as other cosmic forces of some kind. Now, not by everybody, but by uh, quite a few in the church. And they acknowledged that the truth of Jesus, uh, they acknowledged the, tr- the truth of Jesus, rather, but they looked for more. Now, they wouldn't have said they were intentionally moving away from the centrality of Jesus. They wouldn't have said that. But like a riptide catches a person off guard and pulls them out without knowing it, Paul knew where this could take them. And so he's writing to them to encourage them and to warn them. Let's read Colossians 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, 
to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the spiritual and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Three things this morning I I pray we see. First, Paul is thankful for what is already evident in their lives. And second, he's asking for what is always needed. And third, he's thankful for what is already accomplished. First, thankful for what is already evident. You know, Paul, he didn't establish the church of Colossae. He didn't do it personally, but he feels the need to come alongside them, to warn them and encourage them. There's a pastoral responsibility that he feels And he has for this church. Why? Well, Ephesus was about 100 miles away from Colossae, and it still is. And uh, it was there that Paul spent about two years. We learn about this in Acts chapter 19. And it was there that a man named Epaphras, who was from Colossae, most likely heard the gospel from Paul uh, preached there in Ephesus. Maybe he was on business. But then he, he took what he heard in Ephesus and he brought it back to the Colossians. So here Paul is, he's, he's now heard of the report, how they're doing, he's learned the good, he's learned uh, some of the things they're struggling with as well, and so he's writing to this church to encourage them and to warn them. A lot of the New Testament books we call books are actually epistles, they're letters. So Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians, these are letters written to various churches. And so we learn so much about just life on the ground, day-to-day stuff, Christian living, what it means to faithfully walk as followers of Jesus from these letters. He writes in verse 2, to God's holy people. ESV uh, translation says saints. He acknowledges that the church, they're they're God's people, they're holy, they're the set-apart ones. Now, the Colossians hearing this might be like, what? How can you call me holy? How can you call me a holy people or saint? How can you address me that way? They are that way in Christ Jesus. And so are you if you're in Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, this is your identity. You're a holy people. You belong to God. You're set apart for his glory. 
goes on to say, your faithful brothers and sisters. In other words, your family. We're family. I'm writing to God's holy people who are set apart, and I'm writing to family. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. He begins this letter by saying, let the unmerited favor and kindness of God rest on you, God's grace. You know, we can just kind of read this and move on very quickly. Think about grace and peace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Let God's unmerited favor, this undeserved favor and this rich kindness and generosity from God just just lay on you, just to, to be with you. Let this peace Not just the absence of strife, but a restored relationship with the living God, which means wholeness and well-being. Let that rest on you. Grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. It's full of rich meaning. Verse 3, Paul and Timothy admit they're always thanking God when they pray for the church of Colossae. This is an intentional decision on their part as leaders, as, as pastors. He says, listen, we're, we're thankful for what's already evident in you, essentially is what he's saying. What does he see already? What has he heard from Epaphras about this church? He's heard of their faith. He's heard of their love. He's heard of their hope. And these are three foundational qualities of a follower of Jesus. We find it just mentioned again and again and again in the New Testament. Faith, love, and hope. Now, faith always has an object that it rests in. Always. Faith here reaches out to grasp what God offers us in Jesus. And faith in Jesus is evident or it's proven when there's love for God's people. It shows itself. Faith always has an object that it rests in. Always. What is your faith in today? Who are you looking to? What are you leaning on? We all are placing our faith somewhere. For the Christian, the object of our faith is Jesus, who he is and what he accomplished. Now that faith needs to produce something in us, love. Verse 5 talks about this faith and love. Where does it come from? It springs from hope. It's what it grows out of. Now Paul and Timothy are recognizing, they're starting off in in an encouraging way. It's just this is the way you should start when you're writing friends, when you're especially writing people that you've probably they've probably never met, but they want to encourage them in the Lord. Oh, listen, we heard about your faith and your love and how it's just it's actually it's come up from the hope that you have, this gospel truth that you've heard. That's where it's sprung up from. So this hope is like the fertile soil that produces a garden. This hope is like a tree that bears fruit. Hope in the gospel produces faith and love. Not just a generic hope. Hope in the gospel. We, we could say gospel hope. Hope in the good news of Jesus. Hope in what Jesus accomplished on their behalf. It's from that hope that faith and love had grown. So hope here is not just this uncertainty or uh, wishful thinking. Like I said, like I hope so. It's not that at all. Very important for us to understand that when we're reading in Scripture about hope. It's a certainty. It's the very bedrock foundation of our faith. It's something objective and tangible. No one can steal it from, from us either. No one can take this hope away. He goes on to say it's, this hope is stored up in heaven for you. What's he mean by that? Hope holds on to Jesus 
And it eagerly looks forward to the time when God will complete what he began in Jesus. He will complete what he began in Jesus. So there is a certainty in the finished work of Christ. There's a certainty in that. There's a confident expectation, though, that grows out of that for what he will continue to do. What will be. We sang about it, this living hope. There's a living hope that just grows in our hearts for what is and what will be. And Peter actually writes about it as well. Turn with me to 1 Peter. He writes about this living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise, in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into a what? an inheritance, one that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a living hope that we're walking in. There's an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. There's an expectation that should be growing in our hearts. For those who are in Christ, we have this rich inheritance, this treasure that is, is, that is Christ, and all the glory and all the fruit that comes from being in Christ. A new identity, a new purpose, a new center of who we are. But not only for now, but forever. This anticipation should be growing in our hearts for what will be. We are saved, but we're being saved. And what's that mean? We are in Christ, declared righteous in God's eyes through the finished work of Jesus, for those who are in Christ. We stand in his righteousness, it's something that we are, but we're growing in sanctification. We're growing in likeness to Christ. We're learning to follow him. And, and one day, one day, sin will be completely eradicated. There, there'll be no brokenness. Uh, one day, there'll be, and there should be this anticipation, this longing growing in our hearts. I mean, we're dealing with death and brokenness every day. It's heavy and it's real. But one day that will be lifted. So this anticipation, this salvation that's kept in heaven for us, it's a, it's a present experience, but it's also something we're going to enjoy in the future. It's something that should fuel us, fuel the joy in our hearts, the living hope. So like a child who doesn't know he just grew four inches and has to be told and shown, you know, on the, on the door. That's where we have, it seems like every family's got it on, on a door in their house, you know. So you're drawing the mark and then, couple months later you do and you're like oh wow did that hurt to grow that high you know so kids don't know that they're growing (laughs) and as they get older they don't know they're growing all kinds of things facial hair and it's like okay it's helpful to have it pointed out and that's exactly what he's doing here he's a good pastor uh, and he's he's coming alongside them and he's saying look what God's done in your life I've heard about this faith and this love that's grown out of the hope that you have in Jesus. And he's celebrating it. And then in verse 6, uh, Paul and Timothy just, just fired up to find out that the gospel is growing and it's bearing fruit. They say, just as it has all over the world. So by the time Paul is writing, we're about 30 years from the cross, from when Jesus was crucified. By this time, the gospel has gone forth to Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, North Africa, Egypt, Persia. The gospel has gone forth. 
It's bearing fruit. Paul recognized that. But he's saying it's bearing fruit in your life. Wouldn't you want that? Don't you want that set of you? Someone looks in and they see your life or they report how you're living and they're like, man, the gospel is producing something sweet in their life. We see it. It's bearing fruit. That's what's said of the Colossians. Now, this has been happening, uh, they say, since the day you heard and understood God's grace in all its truth. Uh, Since the day you heard it and understood God's grace. So my question for us as we read this is, when did that happen for you? When did you understand grace in all of its truth? Now, maybe you heard the gospel in some form when you were younger, but you didn't understand grace. I mean, a lot of us are in that category, or we're in that category. We heard it, we came into a, a deeper, a more, uh, just fuller understanding of really what grace is and what it means for our lives. And that's good. We should all be growing in our understanding of that. But when, when, did, you, when did you begin to grasp the beauty and the wonder of grace? When did grace become the sweetest and possibly the most scandalous or outrageous and shocking uh, truth that you ever encountered? You might say, what? Why is grace scandalous? Why is grace shocking? When you begin to explore the depths of God's grace, oh, it's not only a head-scratcher. I mean, it's a, you, it blows your mind. You, it causes you to shake your head in, in awe and wonder. That's why we're singing. We're humbled by this grace that we've received, this unearned, this unmerited favor, this rich kindness that God has poured out on us. When did you come to understand this grace and all of its truth? He said the Colossians have been bearing fruit since the day they heard and understood God's grace and all its truth. Now my question is, if you're not seeing fruit in your life of being a follower of Jesus, have you come to understand grace? And if, if you haven't, or if you're beginning to understand grace, I'm glad you're here. This is the place to learn about grace in a community that's been humbled by grace. We can be in church, we can go to church and not understand grace. We can go years and years and years and it not connect with the heart, the center of who we are, the seat of our passion. Just have you understood grace? Have you encountered it? Is it sweet to you? Is it shocking to you? When did it blow up in a good way? Has it broken out of the limitations you've placed on it? To understand God's grace, like I said, is to shake your head in awe. It should lead us to places of humble adoration. It isn't saying that you have it all figured out. When you say you understand God's grace, you're not saying, well, I got that down. Next? What's next? It isn't saying you have it all figured out or that you've exhausted the depths of it. You're humbled by it. You're moved by it. It's shaping your life and you're exploring it more and more. Is that you? That was the Colossians. Paul and Timothy were very fired up about that, and they were celebrating it. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing, is what they say. The word of God is continuing to spread and flourish. We learn this in Acts 12. Herod couldn't stop the word of God from flourishing. Herod could not squelch the word of God. Remember that? Now here we see, uh, many years later, the word of God just continues to grow. How is it growing? It's growing as it's proclaimed to people. They embrace the truth of who God is through his word, and it starts to flourish in their hearts and lives. Little communities, little beautiful outposts of God's kingdom, little cities on a hill. That's what we are. Shining brightly 
in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, as Peter would say. Here we are. Grace is having its way. The word of God is flourishing and spreading, creating something new and beautiful in you. In you. That's what God's word is doing. Paul would write to the uh, Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, and he, he would say, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. If anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. God is doing something new in you through his grace. He's creating a people for himself, a people for his glory. He, he goes on to say in verse 7 uh, that they've learned this grace, they've learned the gospel through Epaphras. Verse 7, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who uh, also told us of your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras gave this initial report. Uh, he, he was the one who brought the gospel to them, it seems. And he says, you learned it. And the word is closely related to the term disciple. So essentially he's saying Epaphras discipled you. He was faithful. He brought you the grace of God. It's what we're called to do. We're called to come alongside others. We're called to be like Epaphras. Come alongside others. In, in light of what we've heard, in light of what we've learned, we're to come alongside others and teach them the grace of God. We can't assume that people have come to understand God's grace. This is more about faithfulness and authenticity on Epaphras' part. He was intentional. He went back into his city, back to his, his, uh, his hometown, and he brought the gospel. He was eager to share it. It's more than just listening to a, a presentation. It's more than an event. Epaphras brought them the gospel. Epaphras brought them the grace of God. He entered their lives, and a community formed around that. They were marked by love. Epaphras told uh, Paul and Timothy about their, quote, love in the spirit. Now, what he didn't mean is just good feelings about each other. Like, oh, we just love each other. You know, it's awesome. He was speaking of the actual mark of a Christian, the true sign of being a follower of Jesus. That sign is love for one another. Jesus said, and you've heard it from me before, that, that the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another, not by your events, not by your t-shirts, not by your bumper stickers, not by your banners, not by your logos, not by your mission statements, by your love for one another, not by your big buildings or your stained glass windows, by your love for one another, by the way you love one another. That is how people will know you're my followers, is what Jesus said. He modeled that love in his life and in his death. When you walk as family with people from different backgrounds and cultures, different races, when lust and anger and lies and unforgiveness, these things that split up families and communities, when all that is replaced with kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and the acceptance of one another, we start to see love having its way. We start to see the fruit of our faith in Christ. And this isn't moralism I'm speaking of. This isn't just like, do good. For goodness sake. You know, it's, it's, it's more than that. It's gospel transformation. And there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference. This is not cultural Christianity. Okay, go to church because that's the right thing to do. This is not about that. This is about being shaped by God's grace. 
This is about being transformed from the inside out. It's about being humbled by the reality of who God is in the face of Christ and what he accomplished on our behalf. It's about being shaped by that love and compelled by that love to love others. In light of the forgiveness we've received, to forgive others. Like we can't hold on to unforgiveness. It's just not even like, it, it can't be a category that we allow ourselves to walk in and when it's made clear to us that we're holding on to unforgiveness or we're being uh, bitter towards others or envious or li- whatever it is, it's like, okay, Lord, you know, the Holy Spirit graciously puts his finger on areas of our life and we, that's where we can just lay it down and say, ah, okay, I want to walk in a manner worthy of this gospel I've received. I want to please you in every way. I want to bear fruit. I want to show I belong to you. Holy Spirit, please produce these things in me. Help me to walk in love. Help me to walk in forgiveness. Because it's hard. It's not easy. But we have some encouraging things that he prays for in a few minutes here. All right, let's keep going. God is doing extraordinary things in, in your life. He is. Stopping to celebrate that work is healthy. It's life-giving. And it's actually uh, a mature thing to do. We need to celebrate what God is doing. And that's what Paul and Timothy do on the front end of this letter. They're celebrating what, the, what, what God is doing in the Colossians. Second, they begin to, they ask. They ask, they're asking for what is always needed. First, they're thankful for what God is already, thankful for what is already evident in their lives. Second, they're asking for what is always needed. He says, we've not stopped praying and asking uh, for what? They want the Colossians to know God's will and experience God's power. That's, that's essentially what they want. They also want them to experience God's joy and to walk in thanksgiving. So those are the three things that they want, and they begin to pray for them. They want them to know God's will, they want them to know God's power, and they want them to experience uh, God, the joy and thanksgiving of, of being humbled by grace. So let's look at this, knowing God's will. They say, they're praying that they would be filled, fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives that the Spirit gives. Look at verse 10. So, so that, he wants them to be filled with wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have, what? Great endurance and patience. That's what he wants for them. The Spirit of God is the source of the wisdom and the understanding that you and I need. He wants them to be filled with and under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He'll he'll write to other churches in a similar fashion. He wants them to walk in the Spirit, live according to the Spirit, bear the fruit of the Spirit. He says here to live a life worthy of the Lord or to walk in a manner. It's a metaphor for behavior and conduct and living. He says... We want you to please him in every way. I don't want you to picture this angry God folding his arms, kind of tapping his foot, and just waiting on us to please him. That's, that's not, it's not the picture I want for us. He's not just waiting for us to win his approval. You know, Valerie, she loves me. We're committed to one another. 20 years of marriage. Yeah. But there are days that I don't please her. A little confession here. But her love remains. I may not please her, but her love for me isn't based on what I do, right? But what I do does say a lot about my love for her. He 
He writes to the Ephesians. Chapter 5. He writes in a similar fashion. Verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Find out. And he's saying investigate. Look into what actually pleases the Lord. Live as children of light now that you are that. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to all kinds of things. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. This is this ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit, this empowerment that comes by God the Holy Spirit who's with us day by day. Live according to the Spirit. Bear the fruit of the Spirit. Walk in a manner worthy of this gospel we receive. Receive the wisdom and the understanding that comes only from the Spirit of God. He wants God's will for their life. Second, he wants God to empower them. And this is really, it bleeds right into what I was just saying. Strengthened with all power. This is the greatest strength that you can imagine, is what he's praying for the Colossians. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Why? He wants them to have great endurance and patience and and joyful thanksgiving. So this is strength for life, strength for living. It's for their fight against sin. It's for their fight against temptation. It's for their fight to discern false teachers and false teaching. It's for the enablement to stand under the weight of opposition. Endurance is what we need. Endurance is what the Colossians needed. Endurance is what you and I need. And we need patience and we need joyful thanksgiving. And so this is what he's praying for the church. And it, it could be a pattern for us as well. We should take the prayers that we find in the New Testament and adopt them as our own. Have you ever thought of that? Just take these prayers and make them your own. Just steal them. Adopt them. Pray through them. This power, it was available for them to walk in. The power of the Spirit. The presence of God. And Paul knew it and was praying for them to walk in it. He wanted them to know God and experience the grace and power that comes in that intimate relationship. I want that for you. I pray this for you. Finally, he's continuing to pray for them, but we see thankful for what is already accomplished. He's still praying. This is part of the prayer. It's part of what they always need. It's part of what we always need. We always need to walk in God's will and know it. We always need to walk in God's power and experience it. And we always need to walk in with joyful thanks, a life of gratitude, of joy. Paul wants the Colossians who have already displayed beautiful faith and love, which is rooted in hope, to move forward with joyful thanksgiving that springs from the very same place their faith and love come from. Where does their faith and love come from? Hope. But not just generic hope, it comes from gospel hope. So where is this thanksgiving, this joyful thanks going to come from? The same place that faith and love come from, hope. Gospel hope. So he describes the hope held out in the gospel in a colorful way that's really hard to forget. How does he describe it? Verse 
He describes it this way. Giving thanks, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. What's going on here? He ends his prayer by saying that the Father has qualified you. So if you don't feel worthy today, if you don't feel like you can earn God's approval on your own, I have news for you, you can't. The Father qualifies us. The Father provides all we need. He made it so, he's saying, he made it so that you could share in the inheritance of the saints. He rescued us. Now he includes himself, he and Timothy. He rescued us. He brought us. He brought us. He transferred us from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his son whom he loves. So the idea is this transferred from one location to the, to the next. And so in Jesus, we have redemption. We've been purchased out of slavery uh, to sin. We've been given forgiveness. This is all Exodus language. Remember the Exodus out of Egypt? Israel was enslaved to Egypt, but they were brought out, brought into a new land, a new inheritance. Why is this Exodus language? Because, listen, this is a new Exodus. This is the new Exodus that Christ would accomplish for us. The old Exodus was from Egypt to inheritance. The new Exodus is from sin to freedom in Christ. New inheritance, one that cannot spoil, one that cannot fade, one that cannot be taken from us. He's saying the same power that has transferred us has brought us into this kingdom of light, this kingdom of Christ is available to transform us. And that's what he's praying for the church. As we close our time this morning, I want you to know I'm praying this prayer for you. I want you to experience God's will. I want you to know it. I want you to experience God's power and walk in the goodness of of his equipping strength, his enabling strength. He He won't ask us to do something he won't give us the strength to do. He's present. And I want you to joyfully give thanks to God that we would live a life of gratitude. What will happen when we have intentional and extended times of prayer based on this passage? What's going to happen to you if you begin to pray this for yourself or for your friends? What's this going to shape in your heart? What will this produce in us as a church as we pray this? That we would know God's will, that we'd walk in his power, that we'd experience his joy. What is that going to produce? Hope in the gospel, it's the soil everything we need grows out of. I said that earlier. I want you to think about it again. I want it to be the last thing that you hear. Hope in the gospel, the reality of what Jesus accomplished for us, it's the soil, the rich soil that everything else grows out of. Faith and love and endurance and patience and joy. And the more we see the beauty of what Christ accomplished for us, the more we see what God the Father has qualified and how he's rescued and how he's transferred us, just the more faith and love and joy and endurance and patience just grows out of that. And that's what Paul prayed for the Colossians. Now next week, we're going to get into my favorite part of this letter. And he holds high Jesus in all of his beauty and splendor. I can't wait for it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much. 
Thank you for what we've been able to explore this morning in the book of Colossians. Lord, my prayer has been that you would help us as a church to know uh, your, your will for our lives, to walk in wisdom and understanding that the Spirit brings, to experience your power day by day, the strength that you supply, and to walk in the joy and thanksgiving of knowing who you are in the face of Christ. God, I pray for anyone here today who would come to a place of seeing that they're just now understanding grace, just now being humbled by it. Lord, thank you for that work you've begun in their hearts. And maybe there's people here, Lord, today who would say, I don't get it yet, but I'm hearing you. Lord, continue to work in their hearts. Lord, I pray that grace would just blow up for them. That grace would be seen as so beautiful, so amazing, so sweet. So scandalous. God, I I thank you for your amazing grace. It really is amazing. Now, our prayer is that it would amaze us more and more as we move forward. In Christ's name we ask, amen.